good. Hey, good morning. I have the head cold too. And uh, so it's kind of a staff thing. We're sharing all good things in the Lord together. And uh, Shannon is actually down sicker than a dog. So you could pray for him. He is out. He called me up yesterday and I went, you know when somebody sounds bad, then they actually sound worse. And then you think, man, you need to go to the hospital bad. And he said, yeah, and I'm feeling worse than I sound. So he, he's, he's not doing well. So you can pray for him. Hey, a couple good things this morning before we get started. This is, if you're new or visiting, this is Emmanuel and Grace, and they are doing ministry in Nigeria, and they have been here. They are beloved friends. They are rock stars. They're just something else. And uh, I just wanted to give a a brief uh, heads up on Hebron Home. That's the name of the ministry. So if you go online, look up Hebron Home, you can get up some of the latest uh, updates and, and that kind of stuff. But uh, we had a board meeting by phone yesterday and uh, some really good stuff. We've got some people in place and spreadsheets and stuff covered. And we actually know where we came out this year and uh, we're in the black and doing well. And so ministry's flourishing. Just in the last three months, eight people came to Christ. Can't tell you all the details for it, but uh, yeah, it's, it's just incredible. So great stuff happening there. And that's not even the most important piece of news. Hey, the most important piece of news is that uh, Emmanuel and Grace are expecting. She's pregnant, so there we go. That's very cool. And this was fun because Emmanuel was talking about it, it freaks him out. And, uh, and I said, Grace, this is so wonderful. We're so happy for you. And we're so excited. We finally found something that freaks Emmanuel out. It was really good. <laughs> and the board just cracked up laughing, right? It was great. So uh, I'll get an update from them and we'll shoot a short video in the near future. But uh, just if you want to, some of you are connected, email and stuff, send them congratulations and, and we'll get more about that in the future. Uh, second thing this morning, I, we sent out in the e-news, not maybe all of you get the e-news or read it, but we sent out that we are going to have an anointing service today. Uh, it's in the passage and we're going to uh, have a time at the end where you can come up and be anointed. And so it just seemed like it made perfect sense. Instead of talking about it, why don't we do it? All right. And so I'll clarify all that. And you don't have to worry. It's voluntary. You don't need to come up if you don't want to. Uh, but I'll list out some needs at the end. And if those resonate with you, you can come forward and we'll participate in that together. All right. So grab your Bibles. We are in Mark chapter 14. Here we go. We're winding towards the end. Uh, Last week we covered the fourth part of Jesus' discourse with the disciples on the last times. And we saw the command that to stay alert, to stay awake. And Jesus was saying, pay attention. And he was saying that to the disciples. He's saying the same thing to us today. Pay attention to the times you live in. Watch, look, see what's happening. Watch what I'm doing. Uh, This, as you know, would be incredibly significant for the disciples especially since they fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? So you can see how that would play out. But it's really important as we head into what's known as the passion or resurrection narrative. And uh, there's some things about that I think that are um, really interesting, all right? So the Expositor's Bible Commentary uh, points out and notes that these events here constitute what's really known as the heart of the gospel. Um, these, this, this section, 14, 16, is basically uh, the earliest um, 
part of the story of Jesus that was written down and circulated back in the beginning of the church. Mark had access to this narrative and he seems to have just incorporated it into his gospel with very little editorial revision. So this is coming way back when. This was the first account of it. And um, so what's important for us is to realize that what we're reading right here is one of the first things ever recorded uh, when it comes to Jesus. And, and the fact that there was, uh, it was a known story and that there were actually living witnesses that could verify and authenticate it. So before we go into it, let's pray this morning, right? And ask the Lord for his help. Father, thank you for everyone who's come. And we pray for this service the way we prayed for first service, Lord. It's, it's a special thing. And it's a chance for you to meet with us and us to meet with you in a way that's uh, meaningful. So give that to you. Lord, I got a head cold. And if the truth is that we, you can work well through our weaknesses, then today would be a great day for you to work. So we give that to you. We lift it up. Be among us. May your presence be with us, Lord. Open our eyes. Help us see. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So let's start with the account. We're starting in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. And it reads like this. Now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Right? So right now the whole thing just drops into the funnel. Right? Can you feel it intensify? Just boom. Um, As we've already seen in Mark's Gospel earlier, there were several places the Jewish leaders had been looking for a way to get rid of Jesus for a long time. And the plot now thickens and intensifies, uh, becoming a deadly chess match. But it was equally as tricky for them. They couldn't just do whatever they wanted to. Jesus was held in very high esteem by the crowds, and the crowds had swelled to more than double the size because of the Passover event. So it's a, a huge deal going on. And so if they did it wrong, if they mistimed it, if it tipped the wrong way, a riot would ensue and then the Romans would get involved and that would just be disastrous results, right? So they, they had to be careful. They, they, they had to plot. And thus stealth and intrigue ruled the day. And uh, they would have to pick their spot wisely. And we'll talk more about that next week because it plays right in here. As you can see from the text, all of this was happening right before the Jewish feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the timing of that uh, occurs during the spring of the year. Now, we're not that familiar with the Jewish festivals, so I thought we'd take a look at them and not just look at them, but then how they connect with us as well. So um, here's a slide. There are seven major Jewish festivals. Four of them occur in the spring, and then three of them occur in the fall. And uh, the first one, that one we talked about already this morning, is Passover. And by the way, I, I, I'm not a genius. I didn't come up with this all on my own. So I went to the website and found an article called uh, Got Questions, called Your Questions and Biblical Answers. And it gave some insight into each of the festivals. So I'm, I'm borrowing from that. But um, so let's look at Passover. And uh, Passover reminds us of our sin. Passover is the story of Israel in Egypt, in bondage. The plagues happen. And then the last one was called the Passover or the death of the firstborn. 
And God said that unless a house was covered in the mantle, on the mantle with the blood of a lamb, that when the Lord passed over, all the firstborn, both of families and of animals, would die. And it was, uh, uh, again, all of God's plagues were judgments against the false gods of the Egyptians. And so, in the Passover, the angel of death literally passed over Israel, and they were able to come out unscathed. And so this is the same picture, uh, but this is also a picture for the time of Jesus. This is a picture of Jesus being the Lamb of God who literally is offered as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's that, that word again. And, and it's on this basis alone that God can justify the ungodly sinner. The reason we can be justified is not because what we've done for God, but because what God has done for us. We come today not because we've done a great job serving Him. We've come today because He's done a great job serving us. Right? And if you think back to how kind God has been to us, uh, you would be able to relate to that statement. So just as the blood of the lamb was sprinkled on the doorpost of a Jewish home, it caused the angel of death to pass over those homes in the last plague, so those covered by the blood of the lamb will escape spiritual death and the judgment of God, which he will visit upon all who reject him. Of all the Jewish festivals, the one that connects the most is this one to Jesus uh, because... um, The Lord's Supper was literally a Passover meal. So what God did here is take this incredible object lesson. And uh, if you've ever gone to a Seder service, uh, your mind's just kind of blown by all the unbelievable things that are built into that service that tell you about the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, and how he fulfilled it. But he took this object lesson and they rehearsed it for centuries. They rehearsed the whole thing. And then when it came time for it to happen, they forgot the lines, right? And they missed it. But we know that that's the same thing for us. You know, if you think about church, really, why does God always remind, the, why does he take these festivals and try to remind them constantly? Because we forget. They forgot. We forget. If you think about church, really, church is, most of the time, you don't get anything new. It's reminding you of what you already know. And then that becomes new. Right? And so the Passover was this incredible picture of how God would provide the lamb so they wouldn't have to die in its place. And so that's Passover. Immediately following Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Up there, that's a, supposed to look like a piece of matzah bread. And uh, we do matzah bread um, for our communion. And there's all kinds of symbology in matzah bread. We don't have time to go into it this morning. But the idea is that there's no leaven. Leaven is the stuff you put in bread that makes the dough rise and makes bread as we know it, right? And in the New Testament, yeast, yeast is what makes that rise. Uh, Yeast is often associated with evil. Uh, You can look in 1 Corinthians 5 and Galatians 5 to get that out, but figure that out. But... uh, so Israel was just, they were to remove all the yeast from their house. And so they had to sweep the corners and all. It was a very elaborate ritual to get rid of the yeast so there would be no yeast or no sin. So likewise, just as Israel was to remove the yeast from the bread, so we're supposed to purge evil from our lives. 
and live in a new life in godliness and righteousness. That's why um, we're doing the night of worship and setting it up on the 28th and moving towards Easter. Uh, if you come from a Catholic background, you'd be familiar with Lent. But many people uh, in the weeks before Easter will set aside something, right? Something that tells them they're taking the relationship with the Lord seriously and uh, setting it aside, getting rid of it, so they can have a closer relationship with the Lord. And that's this picture here, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Christ, our Passover land, cleanses us from sin and evil, and by his power and that of the indwelling Holy Spirit, we're freed from our sins to leave our old lives behind, just as the Israelites did. So that's the picture, right? They were leaving it. Matter of fact, such a rush, they didn't have time to leaven the bread. Right? And that that's a picture. So then we come to the Feast of First Fruits. So we have Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a week. Then we have the Feast of First Fruits. And this takes place at the beginning of the harvest. Now, we don't get this because we're not farmers. But if you grew up in farming communities, what you understand is that you have to be able to plant the crop and then you have to be able to harvest the crop. And the Feast of First Fruits was asking God's blessing so that they could get the crop planted and get the crop in. And usually it was enough that the wheat would come up that they'd take a stalk of wheat, they'd give it to the priest, and the priest would wave the stalk before the Lord. When I grew up in Sugarbush, farmers would actually bring in baskets and stalks of wheat and that, and we'd have that over in the corner of the church, and it was basically following this idea of the Feast of First Fruits. Deuteronomy 26 states that when Israelites brought the first fruits of their harvest before the priests, they were to acknowledge that God had brought them from Egypt. Again, remember, remember, remember. All these things are rotating. Remember what happened and had given them the promised land. This also for us as Christians is a powerful picture because it reminds us that Christ Jesus is the first fruits. Right? He is the first fruits of the offering that's been given to the Lord. And just as he was first to rise from the dead and receive a glorified body, so shall all those who are born again follow him, being resurrected to inherit an incorruptible body. So we have that same picture, only now instead of uh, the harvest, we have the picture of our bodies being resurrected. All right, so we have Passover, unleavened bread, feast of first fruits, and then what's known as the feast of weeks. It was called Pentecost in the Old Testament because it happened 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits. So, uh, Pente means 50, right? So, not that profound. Okay, there's no deep spiritual meaning to that. It just means 50 days after. So, the, the Feast of Weeks was celebrated now at the end of the grain harvest. So, the Feast of First Fruits is celebrated at the beginning, the Feast of um, Weeks is celebrated at the end. And the primary focus of the festival was gratitude for God for the harvest, right? We got it in, we got it planted, we got it off, we got it in the barns, and incredible gratefulness. Uh, it, again, back in Sugarbush, we celebrated this. It was known as a kermis, okay, which is a Belgian term from Europe that they have, but when the crops came in, they would have a kermis. And uh, so you can go to Sugarbush today. Matter of fact, if you <coughs> want to, you can go there this fall, call my family up, hang in my mom and dad's house and sit along the road there and all the parade will come through and they'll be celebrating the Kermis and they have pies and all this kind of stuff. And it's exactly this. It's thanking God 
for the harvest. If you come from a farming community, that makes a lot of sense. For us, that's a little hard with Microsoft and Google, right? And Boeing. So it, it doesn't carry the same impact. But it's gratefulness for the harvest. And, uh, and this also, for us as Christians, reminds us of the fulfillment of Jesus' promise to send another helper. Because there was a second Pentecost in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, where the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples as in tongues of fire, and it began what we call the church age, the age of the Gentiles. And so... Uh, there's a connection with that as well. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in every born-again believer is what seals us in Christ and bears witness in our spirit that we are indeed joint heirs with Christ. And so there's this sense of Pentecost, this sense of the church. So now if you look at those vessels, you have four in the spring, then there's a break. We call that summer, right? That's the time. This is also known as the age of the church or uh, what's known in New Testament as the age of the Gentiles. Did you know you're a Gentile? Okay? We're Gentiles, all right? A Gentile is simply a non-Jewish person. So we are Gentiles. And everything from the first four festivals to the fulfillment of the last three festivals is what's called the church age. And in this, God is bringing in uh, what's called the full number of the Gentiles. And um, this is, uh, time is, is really spiritually symbolic of what God's doing in the church today. And Christ's sacrifice and resurrection are past. We received the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what we're waiting for is His second coming. And all three of the fall festivals have to do with the second return of Christ. And that's why many people believe that just as Jesus fulfilled the spring festivals, he will fulfill the fall festivals the way they were played out, just like he did the spring ones. So worth keeping your eyes on when you see those dates in your calendar. Pay a little attention to them, all right? So let's look at those together. Uh, the first feast is the Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah. And this was commanded to be held on the first day of the seventh month. So in our reckoning for our calendar, that would be September. End of September, all right? You can find it in your uh, calendar if you look it up. But And this was to be the day of a trumpet blast. And trumpets carry a huge symbology in both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, and all that kind of stuff. But the book of Numbers says that there was to, they were to be called to a solemn assembly with the blast of a trumpet to commemorate the end of the agricultural and festival year. And so the trumpet blasts were meant to signal to Israel that they were entering, the work season was done, they're entering into a sacred season. All right? So that was the idea behind it. The agricultural year was coming to a close. There was to be a reckoning with the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. So the trumpet blasts were announcing that the Day of Atonement was coming. All right? The Feast of Trumpet signifies Jesus' second coming. Uh, and you can see trumpets associated with the second coming in verses like uh, in First in Thessalonians. If you look there, chapter 4, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. In another translation, it says, With the cry of a command. Think of an army general calling out troops to muster. Now, 
That's that sense, that shout, that cry of command, a general uh, calling his army into line. With the voice of the archangel <coughs> and with the trumpet of God. That would be something watching here, right? And the dead in Christ will rise first. And of course, the sounding of the trumpet also indicates, now here's the other side of it, the pouring out of God's wrath on the earth in the book of Revelation. Uh, so certainly this all has to do with the great and coming and terrible day of the Lord as Joel and all the prophets in the old Zechariah and them all talk about in the Old Testament. That's what the Feast of Trumpets is about is the beginning. And then you have the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is the holiest day of the year in the Jewish calendar. And it occurs just 10 days after uh, the Feast of Trumpets. So you have the Feast of Trumpets, 10 days, then the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement, the Bible says they, are, they were to afflict themselves. We would call that fasting. All right? Just so you know, they weren't supposed to beat each other up. They were, they, it was fasting. They were to fast for the day. And um, for seven days, the Israelites were to present offerings to the Lord, during which time... Um, oh, I'm sorry. I jumped on the wrong one. Hang, hold on a second here. <coughs> this feast is symbolic of the time when God will again turn his attention back to the nation of Israel. So this is why, I mentioned this last week, why a lot of people believe the rapture occurs here at the Feast of Trumpets because they believe that the full number of Gentile comes in and the end of the church age ends and then begins God's reconstitution of Israel. So the Gentiles will fail to see and now Israel will be given sight again and God will usher in the full number of Jews. All Israel will be saved, as it says in Romans 11. And so the Jewish remnant that survived the Great Tribulation will recognize Jesus as their Messiah, as God, and uh, he will release them from their spiritual blindness, and they will come to faith in Christ. So we're talking about something really dynamic here that the world has not yet seen to this point. It's pretty amazing. And then after the Day of Atonement comes the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, the way to explain tabernacles to you is they were supposed to go out and grab uh, sticks and bushes and leaves and all that and make huts for themselves. We would call it family camp. Right? We're going camping. And they were supposed to go out in the wilderness, build huts for themselves, camp. And the idea is they would be out in the wilderness tabernacling or boothing with the Lord. That in a special way, they set aside all the stuff that they had to do and they just went and spent a week with the Lord. And so it reminded them again of their relationship with the Lord. So this is the seventh and the final feast, and it takes place five days after the Day of Atonement. So for seven days, the Israelites presented offerings to learn, to which time they lived in huts, made of palm branches. And <clears throat> by the way, that also reminded them of their sojourn from right Egypt right to the Promised Land, so it had a lot of significance that way. But this also signifies the future time when Christ rules and reigns on earth. For the rest of eternity, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will tabernacle or camp with the Lord, with Christ Jesus in the New Jerusalem. We won't have to go anywhere. We'll be there. And He'll be with us. Just think of that. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles represents. So Jesus now, in the story that we're going in Mark, I hope that's helpful. We're at Passover. 
He is about to start fulfilling the spring feast and he is about to become the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Literally the Passover Lamb. And then in the midst of this, this amazing story happens. It says this, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly, she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Bethany, of course, is the town on the Mount of Olives uh, that's not far from the Garden of Gethsemane where uh, Jesus would often pray with his disciples. Simon the leper is probably a man who was healed by Jesus but had been known as a leper and the moniker stuck to him. Uh, Most women think this Mary was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Some think it was Mary Magdalene. And there's different accounts that give that impression. Uh, The perfume probably cost somewhere in the neighborhood of a year's wages. So if you think of working for a whole year for a little jar of stuff with a bottle and a little thin neck, just so you would have that for burial, you have some idea how expensive that would be. And here's how the story goes. Once she did this, there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Mark does not identify the grumblers. Matthew says it was the disciples. John tells us that it was Judas Iscariot who was the ringleader. And one of the things we find out is that Judas kept the treasury and he used to pilfer from it. So he saw it as a waste of money because it could have gone to his purposes instead of what it was being used for. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but basically, uh, here's the idea. Here's the story. Here's what's going on. Um, she was doing what they should have been doing. All right? And they felt one-upped by a woman, and so they were trying to disqualify her. How dare you grumble, grumble, grumble. Not only was their answer bad, their motive was worse. And here's what Jesus says. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So we've seen that Jesus was baptized for ministry by John the Baptist. And then now we see that he is being anointed for his death and for his burial. Stop and think about Mary for a moment. We don't often do, we do this often with the male characters in the Bible, not that often with the female, but stop and think about her. She was different. If it's Mary who was the sister of Martha and Lazarus, she was different because... She had been listening all the while Jesus talked. Many times it was in her own home. Um, Matter of fact, she did this so well, she ticked her sister Martha off. Remember what Martha said? Martha was hacked and complained that Mary just sat there and wasn't helping. But Jesus told Martha that Mary had chosen the better part. Mary was listening. 
And what she was listening to was even the hard parts. She heard the parts where Jesus talked about his death. And she responded in one of the most beautiful sacrificial acts of love ever recorded in the Bible. If the Mary isn't Mary of Mary and or Martha and Lazarus, then it's Mary Magdalene. And if you know her story, she was delivered from seven demons. And her act of love and appreciation stands out to the coldness of heart that everybody else had around Jesus. But she anointed Jesus for his burial. And Jesus said the act would never be forgotten. Let's just capture the emotion of that in a song this morning. Just sit back and look at this picture and think through. Let the Lord speak to you while this is shared with us. Thank you, Esther. Let's uh, look at this issue of anointing or being anointed. Anointed literally... Uh, what the word means is a ceremonial application of oil to bestow an office, a calling, sanctification, gifts, or healing on a person. Uh, So in the Old Testament, we find a lot of this. The prophets were anointed. Elijah was told to go and anoint Elisha, who would replace him uh, once Elijah was caught up into heaven in the fiery chariots. Uh, The priests were anointed. Moses was told to anoint Aaron as high priest. Aaron therefore became the first uh, high priest of Israel. And, uh, but there are many other places where the priests were anointed. And then kings were anointed. Uh, we're familiar with Samuel anointing David. And then the whole process David went through for the fulfillment of that anointing. Uh, not only were people anointed, this has to do with people, but uh, places, pillars... Um, Other things like the tabernacle are anointed as well. Moses was told to anoint the tabernacle and all its uh, curtains and utensils uh, were to be anointed with a special anointing oil. And then you can see this theme carried into the New Testament as well. It starts with Jesus himself. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. But they both mean the anointed one. And it's in that spirit and it's in that uh, meaning that Jesus himself came and he said this at the beginning of his ministry. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We saw that Jesus was anointed by his friend Mary and now he carries that title permanently. But we also saw he got his disciples involved in that process. Earlier in Mark, when we were going through, it was pointed out to us that the disciples were put in teams of two and they also anointed people. And it says that they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. James, uh, later the leader of the church, Jesus' brother, told the elders to anoint in cases of sickness. In James chapter 5, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, 
and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So the thought came to me that maybe it might be tremendously helpful for us to have an anointing opportunity in our service since it was right in the passage this morning and I thought, well, instead of talking about it, why don't we just do it? And so the question would be, what would be circumstances that would qualify one to seek for an anointing? And I just put a short list together for us this morning. See if any of these relate to you. Here would be reasons for seeking an anointing. Uh, First of all, sickness. It's right out of the book of James. Uh, We did this just this week with the elders and one of our families, um, praying and anointing them with oil. Um, And it was a powerful time together. Another reason would be uh, you're at your wit's end. You hit a wall. You have gotten this far and you just don't know what to do next. And the future just looks muddy as all get out. You have no idea. You can't seem to hear the voice of the Lord. That would be a good reason to come forward and to be prayed for. Uh, You might come forward because you need faith to do what God's asked you to do. You know... He's told you to step and you just are afraid to. You don't know how to do it. Maybe it's witnessing with friends or maybe it's sharing with somebody or maybe it's doing something that you're uncomfortable doing and you just need to have that sense of faith that God will give you and that would be a reason to come forward. Uh, It could be for healing, not just for sickness. We've mentioned that one before, but I'm thinking of emotional healing. The troubledness of the thoughts in our world today is startling. The level of anxiety in our world today is just off the charts. And you may be battling that. and You may need to come forward for that. Or relational healing. There are just key relationships that are blown apart. You haven't been able to put them back together and you're just asking the Lord for that. Or spiritual healing. Okay? Uh, it's not unusual for people to wind up in church who come out of some occultic background and there are things still chasing you from that background and you really want to be rid of those. And um, that would be a, a reason to come forward. Another reason would just be closeness. You just want to be closer to the Lord and it just for some reason feels like there's a gap or a wall and it feels like your prayers are stilted and you just can't seem to break through and you just want to sense them again. That would be a reason. Uh, Another reason may be gifting. Uh, You may have been given certain spiritual gifts when you first came to know the Lord, but now life has taken you this far and the gifts you had don't work for what you need to do. And so you need a different set of gifts for this path. And so you're coming forward and asking the Lord to gift you for this season of life in ministry. Uh, You may be coming forward just because you need a greater grace. You just need his touch. You need a sense of his grace towards you. Maybe that's in the area of sin. And you know you're polluted. You know you're dirty. You know you walked in this morning and you aren't ready. And the last thing you wanted was to walk into a service like this. That would be a reason to come forward and ask God as the Passover lamb to pass over and forgive your sins and seek an anointing from him. Uh, It could also be several other ones. Uh, Strength, you may be feeling really weak. You may be feeling really knocked over by the spiritual warfare and the battle and not being able to come to grips with it and you just need a a strength 
for this season of life. Uh, service. You may come forward because you really want to serve the Lord and you don't know what to do, but you know it's on your heart. And you want to come forward and, and ask Him for an anointing for service that you could do something for Him and His kingdom. Uh, it could be consecration. You want to come forward this morning because you want to, like Mary, you want to give yourself that way. You want to, all the right, all the cards on the table, all the eggs in the basket. You know you've done that before and you've driven a stake in the ground, but you've come maybe 10, 15, 30 years and you just want to re-consecrate yourself. I just want to come back to you. All of those, there's probably a dozen more. I, I throw those out to stimulate your thinking more than anything else. So this morning, we want to give us a chance to respond. Um, we're going to have some helpers up front, and I'm going to ask my helpers to come up right now if you, if you would do that. Thank you so much. We'll do it very much like when we're doing communion, uh, and uh, we walk up instead of just having it served to us. So you can come down this aisle. The, David and Susan will be there. You can come down this aisle. Bob and Tricia will be over here. You can come down this aisle. Pam and I will be here. And uh, by the way, uh, Pam will be anointing you. I'm not going to anoint you and give you my head cold, okay? If Mary could anoint Jesus, Pam can anoint you. It's all good, all right? But uh, when you come forward, here's what's going to happen. I want you to firmly know why you're coming forward and have that reason in your heart before the Lord. You're, you do not have to share that with us. But you're coming forward. We're going to pray a, a prayer over you. And because I have a head cold, I wrote it down. And it goes like this. I'll, I'll, I'll just use Dean because I need a name. So Dean will use you. Dean, may God fill you with his peace, comfort, and joy and meet the need that you came forward for. I anoint you in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And then you'll be anointed in the sign of the cross. The oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit and His ministry among us. And so what we're going to do is uh, we're just going to have a time of quiet. Some music will be playing in the background. As you feel led, come forward. And when Esther senses that we're close to the end, she'll begin to go into the song. If the song starts and you're still here, j- just stand. It'll all be good. We'll pray our way through it, all right? <laughs>